Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take uh, God's Word in hand now. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 is our text. Today we look at the heart of the gospel, Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. Wasn't yesterday a beautiful day? It was so beautiful that uh, my older children and I went for a hike, really more of a leisurely stroll uh, from the cafe where we had breakfast back to our house. It's not like uh, the hike on the screen, that's uh, Half Dome in Yosemite National Park in Northern California. Half Dome Trail goes from the valley floor eight and a half miles one way to the summit, which is sheer granite rock. Uh, It's a hard climb. It takes all day to get there. And uh, If you leave before dawn, you'll get back right around dusk if you beat a hasty trail. And it's a difficult passage. But the reward is the view of the entire Yosemite Valley from the top. Now, right before you get to the top, there is no vegetation. It's just a sheer, bald, granite rock. And so the only way to uh, summit this peak is to pull yourself up hand over hand up these steel cables that the Corps of Engineers has graciously put in place for tourists. Um, But when you get to the top, it's, it's worth the trip. I've felt that way since August as we've been making our way through the Book of Romans. We've been on a difficult trail, and when we got to chapter 7, the most difficult part was right before we get to the summit, which is today, fortunately, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And I think if you'll uh, engage your heart and mind today, you'll feel the same way I do, that the view is worth the journey. Let's read Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this, his word. So this morning, I want us to focus on some key words and phrases found in our text that will help us appreciate the glory, the wonder, the magnitude of our salvation. This is truly an epic passage, and uh, its greatness is seen at least from four perspectives that we'll look at today. Number one, the great summation. And then we'll look at a great declaration, a great redemption, and finally, a great description. Let's begin in verse 1 with the great summation. He says, therefore, that's a summation kind of word. It means as a result as what's come in the past, there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Focus on that word, therefore. Paul uses it all the time as a transition from one thought to the next. Now, there's some debate about what does he include in the therefore? How far back should we go? Well, I think we're safe to go all the way back to Romans 1.1. And I think Paul's entire argument, which was circuitous and sometimes very steep and hard to understand, was building, as we know in hindsight now, towards this moment. 
Now, he's certainly emphasizing, though, our union with Christ because he says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's found in chapter 6. But let's go back to chapter 1. In verses 1 through 17, he establishes our need of justification. He declares that God has a fixed disposition of wrath against sin all the time. And then in verse 18 of chapter 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 30, he expresses that all humanity has universal guilt before God, the religious, the pagan, the Jew, the Gentile. And then in chapter 3, at the end of the chapter, he introduces Jesus as a Savior and Redeemer and Justifier. In chapter 4, he concludes that the only way to get in on this justification is by faith alone, the means through which we are connected with Christ. In chapter 5, he lists many of the benefits that accrue to believers because of their faith in Christ and because of the doctrine of justification by faith. And in chapter 6, he talks specifically about this mystical union, that because we are now in Christ through faith, that we share in some way with his death, burial, and resurrection, and now we begin that process of sanctification, separation from sin over a lifetime. And then for the last three weeks, we've been looking at chapter 7, the relationship of believers with the Old Testament law. And didn't Brother Tony do a magnificent job last week explaining that even though we are dead to sin and we're no longer under its rule and reign, we still struggle in the flesh, don't we? And we still need the grace of Jesus in our lives. And so let's... Uh, Summarize everything that we've said, the first seven chapters, with this phrase. Therefore, because of these truths, there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's our second point, the great declaration. He's declaring this truth, no condemnation. Did you see that in the song we just sung? No condemnation we have to fear or dread as believers. Not now and not ever. In fact, that's what this Greek word means, never ever. Never ever, now or in the future, do we have to fear God's condemnation. Last Wednesday evening, upstairs in room 245, I was teaching a class on our doctrinal statement, which is the Baptist faith and message of 2000. And we came to Article 9 of 21 articles. This article is described as the kingdom of God. And I said to our class that the kingdom of God, our understanding of it as Baptist, is that there is an already and a not yet element to the kingdom of God. Right now, already, Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning in the hearts and lives of believers and of his church, isn't he? But one day, the Bible says he is going to be declared King of kings and Lord of lords over all creation. And everyone's going to understand that truth. Now, he's already King of kings and Lord of lords, but people don't understand it. They don't bow their knee to it. But one day they will, according to Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2, he says one day, Every knee will bow of things in heaven. I take that to be angelic beings of things on the earth, human beings and things under the earth. Even the demons are going to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so there's an already and a not yet element to the kingdom of God. There's an already and not yet element to this passage today. No condemnation now and no condemnation in the future. This word condemnation is a legal term. And in our own legal system, you can sort of understand it. Someone that is condemned, there's a three-phase process. Number one, they have to be accused of a crime. You, you can't, under our Constitution, put someone in jail for a long period of time without accusing them of a, spe a specific crime. And then they go before a jury of their peers, and they're either declared innocent or guilty. If they're declared guilty, they're not only accused, they are condemned. And then the judge comes along, and he passes sentence. 
Well, this Greek word that we simply render condemned in the English Bible includes all three of those. We stand accused, Romans 3.23, we fall short of the glory of God. The verdict is in from God that we're all guilty and condemnation awaits us on the day of judgment. And this word includes all of those aspects. Now we know that a condemned person, even in our legal system, is in a lot of trouble, aren't they? They've been found guilty. Uh, They're awaiting execution of that sentence. Sometimes those who have committed capital crimes and been found guilty and sentenced to death, we say they're on death row. But if we understand the Bible appropriately and correctly, we'll understand that every human being who has not bowed their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ can be said to be on death row. In fact, there are three deaths mentioned in the Bible. There's physical death, and not even Christians can escape that. Because of our first parent's sin, a sin curse was passed on all humanity in Genesis chapter 3, and so we are born with a death sentence, every one of us. Scripture says it's a point that every man wants to die and then to be judged. But also because of our sin nature, we are dead spiritually. Paul says that we were dead in trespasses and sins when the Lord breathed life into us. But for those who die never receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, they await the final judgment, which will be the eternal death, in which it's found that the book of life does not contain their name. They will be cast into the lake of fire, the book of Revelation says, which was prepared for Satan and his demons. And there are implications for Christians and for the church today. Jesus said, we have the keys to the kingdom. He said that specifically to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. What a tragedy it is that uh, we've taken that to mean that the apostle Peter decides whether or not people get into heaven or not. We've all seen movies and cartoons. Someone dies and they're standing at the gates of heaven. It's up to Peter to decide whether or not they get. Aren't you glad Peter doesn't decide your eternal fate? All Jesus was saying to him is that Peter, you and the other disciples, and then those who were converted through their teaching, hold the key to heaven. That is, we have the key to the lock that undoors freedom for people to allow them into eternal life. And that key, of course, is the gospel. It is the doctrine of justification by faith. And that's why it's such a tragedy when churches miss the point of the gospel. They get sidetracked by politics and social reform rather than the simple doctrine of justification by faith. And this has been going on for hundreds of years, if not thousands, but it seems to be particularly a temptation in these days. I read a quote this week from a pastor that wrote it 20 years ago, but I was stunned in its profundity and its appropriateness for our present situation. John Piper said this, quote, if we promote as believers housing, jobs, health care, minus the message of God's wrath, we comb man's hair while he's in the electric chair, end quote. It's a vivid picture. The book of Romans has condemned all humanity to death. And if all we do as a church is comb their hair and make them look better for judgment day, we have failed in our mission. Now, that's not wrong to meet people's physical needs, to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. We ought to do those things, visit the sick and the orphan. But that's not the gospel. The gospel has to do with man's eternal soul. So we dare not miss the point, because if we do, 
If we get, become to the point where we believe that giving a cup of cold water to meet a physical need is the gospel, we comb a man's hair while he's in the electric chair, all the while holding the keys to his eternal freedom in our pockets. And that's a tragedy. Now, I want to warn you here, when he says there's no condemnation for believers, do not equate in your mind the term condemnation and the term discipline. Because the Lord does chasten and discipline his own children, doesn't he? Condemnation is judgment. It is punitive. It is designed to punish the sinner. Discipline is designed to restore the sinner and keep him on the right track that leads to heaven. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, those of you who had caring and loving parents understand this inherently. Your parents did not discipline you when you misbehaved because they hated you, rather because they loved you. And in fact, God's discipline can be a means to grant you an even deeper assurance of your salvation. In fact, this eighth chapter of Romans is all about having assurance in your salvation. It's like standing at the summit of Half Dome and looking down on the valley of all the beauty all around you. And how does that happen? How do you get assurance that you're loved by God through discipline? The same way you got it from a father who loved you at home. When he disciplined you appropriately, not out of anger, not to punish, but to restore you to the right path, you understood that there was safety and security in your home because you had friends whose parents didn't love them enough to discipline them or else when they disciplined or called it discipline, it was out of anger and abuse to relieve their personal frustrations. But our Heavenly Father loves us enough to chasten us and discipline us, keep us on the path that leads to heaven. But there's the third uh, phrase here I want you to look at. It's the great redemption. He says, uh, beginning there in verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. He has set us free, he says, by the law of his Spirit. That's the phrase, set you free. Now what are we set free from? When Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, he was talking about being set free. They were offended by that, and they said, look, we've never been enslaved to anyone. Very poor history students. Their ancestors spent 400 years in bondage in Egypt. Their ancestors were 70 years in Babylonian captivity. At that moment, there were Roman soldiers with hobnailed boots walking the streets of Jerusalem. They were under bondage at this moment, but Jesus wasn't talking about physical bondage. He was talking about spiritual bondage. And Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, what do we need to be set free from? Well, Paul spilled a lot of ink here in Romans 1 through 7, describing what we're to be set free from. One, he says, the dominion of sin. Of sin. That is, we can't help but sin because that's who we are. We're in the dominion and under the dominion of sin because of our Adamic nature. By virtue of being sons and daughters of Adam, we are born, as David said, in iniquity. In sin were we conceived. And so one of the things that happens at our conversion, at the moment of justification, our souls are transferred from an Adamic nature, which leads to death and eternal hell, to now having the nature of Christ. We are no longer in Adam, but we are in Christ. 
We are freed, in other words, from our obligation to obey our old nature. We are freed from a marriage, Paul used that illustration, to an old spouse who we were under his subjection, free to marry a new spouse, Christ, to produce the fruit of righteousness. But here in verse 2, he says that we are set free also from the law of sin and death. I told you several weeks ago that we have to be careful here in the book of Romans when we come to the word law, because Paul uses it in multiple ways. He uses it sometimes to talk about the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Sometimes he uses it to talk about the ceremonial law, the rules regarding how sacrifices were to be made and worship in the temple. Sometimes he uses it to do with civil law, how the nation of Israel was to function as a political entity. But in this case, he's using the term law simply as a principle of behavior. That is, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, there was a law that's just as surely true as the law of gravity, that when we try to please God, we will fail. That is the law of sin and death. But even if he was talking about the moral law, the Ten Commandments, which I don't believe he is here, we've established several times in this study that the law could not and cannot save anyone. Now, there's nothing wrong with God's law, nothing wrong with the law of gravity. I'm glad we have it, or else we'll be go spinning out into space. But sometimes you need to overcome certain principles and the only way to overcome certain principles or laws is by something which is stronger. And that's what he's describing here. There's nothing wrong with God's law. It's holy and just and good, but it was never intended to save, only to be a measuring tool by which we can see that we fall short. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a preacher from many years ago, said this, quote, It is as impossible for the law to make any man holy as it is impossible for a 10-foot pole to make a man 10 feet tall, end quote. 10-foot pole can't make you 10 feet tall. It can show you that you're not 10 feet tall. That's what a measuring device does, and that's what the law is. But the measurement is not 10 feet. It's the perfection of Christ, and we all fall woefully short. So we have to have something more powerful than the law of sin in the flesh to overcome that if we're ever to see heaven. He said, Pastor, I can't comprehend what you're talking about. Yes, you can. All you have to do after church today is get in your car and start driving east towards the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. And on the horizon, you're going to start to see airplanes taking off and descending into that great airport. And uh, if you know anything about air travel, you know that those jets are huge and they weigh tens of thousands of pounds. And you also know, and we're taught in ninth grade about the law of gravity. And uh, you know that it would take a thousand men to lift that jet off of the tarmac even one inch. So how in the world do thousands of people a day get on planes out of the Dallas-Fort Worth airport and travel all over the world without any concern that they can't get off the ground? Because they know there's a stronger principle at play than the law of gravity, and that is the law of motion, which includes concepts like lift and drag and weight and thrust. And you put all those things together, the incredible thrust produced by those jet engines, coupled with the shape of those wings and the aerodynamics of that fuselage, you go fast enough, you take off the ground. And if you have a pilot that knows what they're doing, he takes you up 30,000 feet in the atmosphere and sets you down 
gentle as you please, 2,000 miles away. And that happens day after day, day after day. We think nothing of it. But that's what Paul says is happening at a spiritual level. The law of sin and death is pulling us down, and the law of the spirit of life sets us free and releases us from that law. But you remember that Paul vigorously denied that he was teaching that the law was evil or unnecessary, but uh, that it was never intended to redeem us. Rather, it exposes that which is within us and draws it out of the open and ultimately leads us in desperation to the Savior. And that's when the Holy Spirit steps in and he sets us free by the principle or the law of the Spirit. Now, you might notice in these verses, all three members of the Trinity at work here. For one, we have the Father sending the Son into the world to be our substitute, our atonement. You have the Son willingly fulfilling the law and redeeming a people unto himself through his shed blood. And then you have the Holy Spirit pouring out God's love into our hearts and granting us through the proclaimed message faith and repentance and empowering us to obey his commandment over over our lifetime. In fact, Paul says here he is our sin offering, that is the Son He's our substitute. He grants us atonement. And now your mind is going back to the old covenant. And you remember those ceremonial laws prescribe how many animals and at what times of year and how the priests were to sacrifice them and cut up the flesh. And on the day of atonement, how they sprinkled the blood upon the altar uh, there in the Holy of Holies, upon the mercy seat. And all of those sacrifices, all of those prescriptions had no power to save, no more power than the law. They were but foreshadowing and typical prophecy of the one who did have the power to save, the once for all Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the book of Hebrews says those sacrifices never have to be repeated. Didn't see anyone pulling a trailer full of sheep out there this morning, and I'm glad for that. Because Jesus is the once for all sacrifice for sins for all who would ever believe. There's one more point I'd like to make, and that is the great description that he makes about how we're new in Christ. The great description. Look at verse 3 again. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now look closely at what has changed. When we came into the world, remember, we were born with a death sentence. We were condemned, accused, indicted, sentenced to everlasting death. But when Christ came and he granted us faith and repentance, we were connected to him by faith, We are said to be in Christ. We share in his death, burial, and resurrection, and he's totally flipped the script. No longer are we condemned by death. Listen to this. Christ condemns death. In fact, 2 Timothy 1, verse 10, Paul writes that Christ is busy right now abolishing death. The Puritans used to talk about the death of death. And I think we see that most clearly in Revelation chapter 21. You remember the Apostle John transported supernaturally to the throne room of heaven. He's able to see how this world ends. He's told to write down what you see, John. 
to preserve it, I take it, for every Christian that would come along later to be encouraged by. And what did he see? He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And there's no longer any darkness, no longer any sea. First things have passed away, he said. And he says on top of that in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 21 that there's no more dying or death. And every tear will be wiped away. That is the death of death. We are set free. And remember what Jesus said, John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And if you're a born-again Christian here today, you are not just sort of free, you are free indeed, which means you are free now. You don't have to walk around with your shoulders hunched over with a baggage of guilt upon you, barely able to shuffle. Scripture says that we cast our burdens upon him because he cares for us. But as one pastor told me once, we, we cast those burdens down, we keep coming back because we missed them. So we carry around unnecessarily this baggage of guilt. Yes, we sin, but when we do, we have the indwelling spirit to show us that instantly, that we may repent of it and turn from it and get right back on that journey with the Lord. And that's why he says, through the Apostle John again, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's just like Jesus gave that great picture of washing feet there in the upper room the night of his arrest. We don't have to get saved all over every time we sin. We still struggle with this flesh. But when we do, we confess it and have the dust and dirt of the world washed off so that we can again enjoy the fellowship we have with the Lord through his spirit. So when I say we're free indeed, we're free from several things. One, we're free from condemnation, from God and even from ourselves, certainly from Satan, not only now but forevermore. And then we're free from the penalty of sin, that future where we would stand before the Lord and be cast into outer darkness is not for us. We're free from that. We're free from the power of sin in this life. We don't have to obey our flesh anymore. We are free to serve Jesus and to obey him. And one day when we die or Jesus calls us home, we will be free from the very presence of sin. And what a day that will be. Scripture says right now we see as in a glass darkly. It's kind of the shiny piece of metal. You can kind of make out your reflection, but no features we think about the glory that is to come. We, we're given little snippets and an outline of what it's going to be like. But one day we're going to see it just as clearly as we see one another face to face. We are set free now, but we're as free now as we're ever going to be. You know what Paul is saying in chapter 8? Because you're as free as you're ever going to be, now live like it. That's what chapter 8 is about. And, and for the next several chapters, it's about the practical application of the doctrine of justification by faith. And that is Paul's MO in almost every one of his epistles. For the first half, he gives us incredible, deep, mind-blowing theological truth. <laughs> and then he comes to the high point, and he has some summary statement. And then he says, now live like this. Live in light of this. This is who you are. Live like it. And so this is what he says in verse 4. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law. Now, what is the requirement of the law? Think about this. 
Is the requirement of the law that you obey 80% of the rules? 90? 99. The requirement of the law is that you obey it perfectly. How many people have obeyed the law perfectly? Not one, except the Lord Jesus, who left the glories of heaven, took on human flesh for that very reason, so that he could be tempted in every way that we are, so that he could be without sin and go to the cross and be our substitute in our atonement. So how then should we live? Well, he says we are to walk after the spirit and not after the flesh. Now this word translated in our English Bibles as walk is one of my favorite Greek words, peripateo. Uh, it sounds like putting one foot in front of the, uh, the other. Um, we, we know he's not talking about physically walking. You probably have had some good Christian friend at some point in your life come along beside you and say, tell me, brother, tell me, sister, how's your walk going? And we know immediately what they need. Are we walking closely to the Lord? Is our pattern of practical daily living leading to sanctification or not? Now, don't hear him saying, are you living sinlessly perfect? It's not what he's saying. He's saying, how is the pattern of your practical daily living? Is there evidence in your life that you've been born again? And if the answer is yes, then you should have assurance of salvation. See, before we were saved, before we were justified, before we were born again, we lacked, hear this, we lacked both the desire and the ability to please God. <laughs> it's not that we were trying as hard as we could to please God and falling just a little bit short. We were dead in sins. We lacked the desire to please God, and we certainly lack the ability to please God with our lives. But now that we are born again, now that we are united to Christ by his grace alone, through faith alone, it's a different story. Through his indwelling spirit, he gives us both the desire to obey him, and hear this, the, the ability to obey him. The desire and the ability. That's why Paul said in Romans 5, Wretched man that I am, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. I do. Who would deliver me from the body of death? He gave him a desire, but because he still lives in this flesh suit that still has some residual effects of sin, he knows it's going to be a battle and a war to the day he dies to do the very thing that the Holy Spirit gives him a desire to do, which is to obey Christ. And yet... He will give us both the desire and the ability if we faint not. And so if you're a Christian here today and you've been battling a particular sin a long time, do not give up. Do not wave the white, white flag of surrender. If you've sinned for the 10,000th time, get right back on the horse. Get right back on the path. And put one spiritual foot in front of the other and depend upon his grace and not your own strength. And the Lord will grant you victory. I was reminded this morning of a man I met 18 or 20 years ago. His name was Ted Stone. He actually came and spoke to this church a couple of times, I recall. He was a trustee at Southwestern Seminary when I was a student there. And Ted um, walked away from the faith he was taught as a child in North Carolina, and he started taking drugs. He was a very successful businessman, and uh, 
even preached from time to time. But as he tells the story, that uh, drug overtook his will and his mind, and he spent every penny he had on it, all the while still holding a very high standing in the community in which he lived. Secret drug addict. But to support that drug addiction, he began to rob convenience stores. He robbed at least four, and on the fourth, the owner fought back, and he pulled a gun and shot the owner. I told the story incorrectly this morning. I said the store owner died, but thankfully, the Lord spared his life, and he was only convicted of attempted murder rather than murder. But while in prison, the Lord got a hold of his life, showed him his need of a Savior, and he was transformed, and he began to walk with the Lord, evangelize other Christians, and after a period of time, his sentence was commuted, and he was set free. But do you think he was the same man? He spent the rest of his life in gratitude for what the Lord had done. He began walking from one end of this country to the other, and he preached in thousands of churches and thousands of open-air venues to anyone who would give him five minutes. And he shared literally with tens of thousands of people. And when he was in his late 60s, he wanted to take one more walk across the country. And the Lord in his sovereignty, when he got to Nashville, Tennessee, took him on to glory. The point is this. If you have been set free, and you're free indeed, you ought to live like it. Your life ought to be different. You ought to order your life and your priorities differently than your lost neighbor. You ought to spend your money differently. What you think about and you dwell upon in your quiet time ought to be different than someone who knows not the Lord. You don't have to walk around with a burden of guilt. Because there may be someone here today that still has that burden of guilt. They're still dead in their trespassing sins. Perhaps the Holy Spirit of God has convicted you this morning through this message of your sin, your guilt, the righteousness of God and the truthfulness of his judgment that is to come. But you don't have to face that judgment because Christ has already taken that burden upon himself at the cross. And if you will bow your knee to his lordship, remember you're going to bow your knee to the Lord either in this life or on judgment day. Every knee will bow. But if you'll bow your knee in this life, you'll be forgiven. That burden of guilt will be taken away. And you can say with every believer in this room, no condemnation. Now I dread in this life or in the life to come. I pray that all of you know the Lord Jesus. If not, you can today. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this great pinnacle of doctrinal truth. And as we look down upon the first seven chapters, Lord, we see where you were taking us. It was a difficult journey, but it's worth the trip because now we see that there's a reason why we can have assurance of salvation. Because Jesus has taken our guilt upon himself. You are satisfied with his offering and his sacrifice. And we are as secure in Jesus as Noah and his children were in the ark when you shut them up. Just as surely as that deluge came and scoured the earth, there's coming a day of your future wrath. And Father, those of us who are in Jesus don't have to fear it. Our punishment has already been made at the cross through Jesus. Lord, thank you for that. I pray if there's even one soul here today who knows you not, 
that you would not give them rest until they believe on Jesus. Father, I pray for every believer that this would not be theory, but this would be practice. Now that we know who we are in Jesus, help us to live like it every day through your Holy Spirit. Use us, Father, we pray for your honor and glory in this community. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.